Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome back to another episode of TV Show and Tell, the podcast that aims to nail to the wall that jelly called the TV industry. I'm David Bodicombe. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. And in today's episode, we're talking about contestants. In particular, how do contestants get selected to appear on your TV screen? Today, we're talking to a contestant booker in the form of casting executive Andy Mallon, who's going to spill the beans into what makes a good contributor. We'll also be talking about the trend in play-along experiences, and we'll be checking in on the health of the streaming industry. But first, we have the news, and this time there's a couple of Netflix shows I wanted to mention. So we're going to talk a bit more about the metaverse with our guest later on, but wanted to mention a format called Oh Hell No uh, with Marlon Wayans. Have you heard of this one? No, I haven't. No, tell me. Ah, right. Well, this is very interesting. So this is a format that Facebook have devised to effectively promote the metaverse as a platform. So what happens is there is two levels going on. One is that a celebrity guest gets bited on by Marlon, who is, you know, famous for you know, his, his, his movies, like uh, scary movie and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he does a stunt with them in the studio. So they've put on their meta quest to, um, on, and they see a virtual world around them. And what he does, it plays into one of their fears. So if they're scared of heights, they get put in like a hot air balloon or something like that. Right. And then what they do in the studio is they, they sort of a bit like those sort of 4D movies that you get at theme parks. They might blow fans in your face. They might sort of rock the thing you're sitting on slightly to make it seem unstable. So they, they do various practical jokes with you to sort of un, unsettle you further. But. The thing is that if you have a MetaQuest 2 at home, you can kind of go into the same virtual world and, and experience some of what they're experiencing as well, because the, the data for that virtual world is there to, f- so that you can then, you won't get the, you know, the fan in your face and all that kind of thing, but sure. you'd still be able to sort of get a, a sense of, a sense of what they're going through. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, a show that I, I have in development, which I can't talk too much about, but we're trying to build in a MetaQuest experience into that so that the viewers can be going through the same experience as one of the contestants in the show. Well, maybe this might be close to what you're doing, but I would have thought what would be better would be to put the celebrity genuinely in a balloon <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then you use the footage from that to sort of uh, feed your your yeah. like, 4D experience for the viewers at home. But anyway, 
felt like a slightly cheaper version of what could have been possible mm. with a big, bigger budget. But anyway, it's, it's, yeah, what's interesting also is, is that that, that f- is going out on the platform of Marlon Wayne's own Facebook profile. <laughs> right. So that's, okay. So that's, that's, kind of, that's, that's the kind of, channel, as it were. That's the channel. That's kind right. of like where you go and watch it if you want to, if you want to see this, um, this show. So, um, and finally, I just wanted to also mention a new show on Netflix. Well, but is it a show? It's called Triviaverse, and it's not really doing metaverse, even though it ends in verse. It's effectively a. If I already had a go at doing one interactive quiz show, Trivia Quest, this Triviaverse one seems a lot better. It's a very simple idea. It's a three rounds of questions. You get a minute of questions, another minute of questions, another minute of questions. They get gradually harder. And there's some, some bonus points if you manage to string together several correct answers in a row. And that's basically all there is to it. But what I'm a bit puzzled about mm-hmm. is that it's not episodic. It's not like I can challenge you to beat my episode one score. It's like you can play this many, many times if you want to in a day. And the questions will just get pulled out of a random pack of questions. Right. So to me, that's an app. <laughs> that's no longer a that's no longer a program yeah so like is, is that mm. is that now where netflix is going is sort of making more things like an app so i think all of that means that we should uh rebrand our podcast the tv show and televerse <laughs> Unscripted TV shows would be nothing without the people that populate them. But in addition to the paid talent, there's also the contestants or contributors. Where do they come from and how are they selected? Andy Mallon is a casting executive who's had over a decade of experience doing just that on quizzes, reality shows, dating shows and factual entertainment formats. Let's hear from him now. Now, if you ever wanted to be a contestant on a show, then you have to get past the casting team, the people that are there to research and find out about the people that want to go on the show and recommend them to the people who are making the program. Well, we've got one of the most experienced casting producers in the UK with us now, and it's Andy Mellon. Hi, Andy. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Justin. Hi, David. Nice to be with you. How did you get into casting? Why do you like doing it? I first got into casting about six seven years ago I had worked in music television previously and I was kind of just at a point in my early career as a researcher where I was looking for my next my next role previously worked at Remedy Productions and got involved in quite a lot of quiz run-throughs so I enjoyed kind of taking part in quizzes and so I kind of knew that the casting side and kind of looking for people to take part in quizzes would be something that I would uh, enjoy doing as well. So what are the key things that you're looking for when you're looking for a really good contestant to fit a particular format? What you are looking for can vary vastly depending on the type of show, but I'll kind of go through a couple of things that are kind of like definite yeses and definite noes. On the vast majority of shows, probably all of the shows I've worked on, you want contestants who the viewers can get behind and root for in the current climate of TV and or certainly on the shows that I've worked on, you're not really looking for those villain type contestants who people would, would want to lose. So you want someone who's kind of endearing and especially, you know, someone that you would want to win 
especially for shows with large prize funds, you'd want someone who that can make a real difference to their lives. You wouldn't want, you know, Alan Sugar going on uh, kind of <laughs> punters quiz show and winning £500,000 so he can make a new swimming pool. You want someone who it's, you know, going to make a real difference to their life. I have heard of a dentist who's a quite a frequent game show contestant who has sometimes quipped when, when asked by a contestant researcher, like, what would you do with the £1,000 if you win it today? He said, I'll take the day off. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does so as a joke, but that's very much sort of emphasising the, the point that you're making, that it's like you've got to match the people with the expectations of the money that they want to win. Yeah, and also just in general as well, you're looking for people who are going to be expressive on the screen, obviously to varying degrees, and kind of being able to talk through the reasoning. For a, a shiny uh, floor Saturday night TV show, it's a different type of contestant than an only Connect contestant. Um, but you still want, you don't want someone who's just going to give you one word answers because that's not going to fill half an hour or an hour of TV. It's quite an unnatural thing, isn't it, about t- talking your answers through? Because I made a point to sit in on the AnyConnect um, auditions and there were sometimes some very, very good teams who would be on, uh, but they would always go into a, a huddle. Mm. And then, like, the producer would drop hints about, like, can you talk through your reasoning? And they just wouldn't get the clue. And so they, they wouldn't get on the show mm. because if they can't do it in a room, it's unlikely they're going to do it in a studio. I worked on a quiz show called Very Hard Questions and it was presented by Jon Snow. Three contestants, proper high gen- general knowledge kind of contestants with very hard questions. And it was all about how they got to the answer. And people would just do that kind of thing like you do on University Challenge where you turn to the side, put your hand up and go like this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas we want to hear, you know, why have you got to that answer? Again, that's one of the job of the casting teams. It's often like you're being a parent and just being a bit of a nag, but it does make a big difference when you kind of watch the final shows and, and you do see those people kind of talking, talking their answers through. What do you think the balance is between the kind of authenticity of the people that you find for shows and the process of actually finding them. I say this because I always remember the taxi driver on Millionaire on one of the very early shows and the nature of the process by which people got onto Millionaire then mm-hmm. was was very much more random. I remember the producer of Millionaire telling me that Chris Tarrant was extremely worried about this contestant and was saying, you know, he's already sitting in the in the ten. And if he gets in that chair, I don't know what to do with him. And they said, there's nothing we can do about it, Chris. You know, he's got through this, is that. Um, and he was just absolutely not the kind of person they would have cast. And he turned out to be total gold. There are those kind of people, I call them kind of like a wild card contestant. Sometimes you <laughs> yes. get people um, that you talk to on an audition, whether that's in person or on Zoom, And you just think there's something about this person. Either they could make an amazing hour of TV or they could be terrible. I will always show that person to my series producer, to my exec and kind Mm. of say, what do you think of this person? This is the pros, this is the cons. And depending on the type of show, you know, you can take more of a risk about whether it's a show like Moneybags, who you're one of the 10 uh, versus a show like Millionaire, where it's more you know, intense because you could almost be the whole hour of TV if, if you get really far. Yeah. On Family Brain Games, we had 
families who potentially could have been on about four episodes out of eight or something yeah. like that. And so they, they were sort of essentially half of our series. The winners would have been half of our series. So they had to go through amazing jumps of hoops mm-hmm. to, in order to get on. I think the casting process for different shows needs to be bespoke because the amount of time contestants are on screen um, can define uh, the casting process and how long, uh, how many back and forwards you need with the contestants because you know a bad contestant uh, could kill a series in the same way that a good contestant um, could hopefully you know lead to a recommission. So let's sort of just pull that apart mm-hmm. a bit. You've worked on like the hit list, yeah. money bags, and a show called House Share. W- what are the sort of different nuances you're looking for on those three shows? Yeah. So I'll start with the hit list. Um, I've worked on series three and four of hit list. Uh, the key thing is music knowledge. It's not the kind of show where you get on if you just know a little bit. It might seem that, you know, there's one of the three pairs who doesn't know that much about music, but that is absolutely not the case. Uh, these people have been been tested and their music knowledge is, is pretty amazing. Uh, all, all, all of the three pairs, obviously there are standout contestants like in any show, but we auditioned probably about 150 to 200 pairs of video auditions for the hit list and, and, wow. and that's to get uh, 18 uh, and prior to that you know there's the application form that we forms that we'd look at and a kind of initial telephone conversation as well to kind of gauge contestants um, the kind of second thing on the hit list in any shows uh, that would have pairs is that bond between the pairs on a show like hit list you can't have one weak link in, in the pair in terms of their music knowledge or more importantly, probably in terms of their personality. It's a Saturday mm. night show. You don't want an amazing daughter who's absolutely loving being there and she's got her dad beside her who doesn't want to be there <laughs> and is just doing it for her. <laughs> One of the things that I'm kind of quite passionate about in casting is to keep people as themselves. So, you know, you don't need to produce people up to be everyone, jazz hands, shiny floor, if that's not what you are. But mm. there's still a kind of level of producing where you can get someone to be enthusiastic, get them to put on that nice shirt, comb their hair, um, <laughs> you know, smile, talk in sentences and just kind of give as much to the experience and to the show as they can. So that's the hit list. Yeah. So what about something like House Share where it's a, it's a contributor type thing? So the premise was uh, BBC Three docu-reality series 6. 18 to 25 year olds who all move to London uh, and they share the same house but they also share a communal bank account as well. They basically need to share everything and how are they going to kind of work that through. We had to look for people who genuinely wanted to move to London who kind of had a reason behind why they wanted to move and why it would be beneficial to them. On this and on all the shows that I do uh, kind of representation is crucial as well mm. so we wanted people from across the country from a wide variety of backgrounds male female obviously ethnic diversity nations and regions representation um, so we had six people and we had to have six people that kind of encompassed the UK so we had James uh, Joyner from Shetland had kind of never been to London before and then we had, on the opposite side, uh, Rian, who was a kind of Essex boy who worked in recruitment. The different kind of characters. We had Paul from Sunderland who wanted to get into fashion uh, and kind of enjoy 
you know, the LGBT scene in London. The casting process for that uh, was more involved. First of all, we had to work out the practicalities of how this was going to work. How were they actually going to share money? Basically, these people, some of them had jobs moving to London and some of them didn't. And basically, the mechanics of the show uh, was quite integral in terms of how I persuaded the interested contributors to take part. Uh, Some of them obviously were just like, I'm in, I don't care how it's going to work, I'm just in. But other people wanted uh, to make sure that they weren't financially penalised by the show and how we shared money. Did you have to analyse like how spendy they were and how and how likely they were to create conflict with the others? Um, we had to get an idea of what people spent their money on and how that might be different for people kind of within within the house. So one of the kind of key storylines was Rian, the Essex boy, uh, of his own accord, not produced, spent four hundred pounds on designer shoes um, because he he had contributed. Uh, to the household budget so he thought that that was kind of his right versus someone else who was job hunting and in his view was kind of taking money out of the budget to you know eat and you know go on <laughs> night outs and things like that so that that was kind of one of the key uh, areas of conflict but yeah go back to the kind of casting process on on this we had an application form um there was lots of outreach house share it was a first series we had to, you know, put up a casting flyer, had to post on lots of Facebook groups of, you know, News in Essex, get in the Shetland Times, contact lots of people on Instagram. Is there a danger that with communication being so easy now with Facebook groups that we're, we're only going to reach the more internet savvy people that are on these things? I think it totally depends on the show. I think for the younger demographic, you know, the vast majority of them are on these platforms and we weren't looking for people who had, you know, Love Island style followings. And I think shows like Love Island, they have been a bit guilty to some degrees. Uh, well, that's a good or bad thing for people to, to decide uh, in terms of having people on who've got large existing platforms where their influencers have got 200,000 followers. Uh, whereas we specifically wanted for House Share to have, you know, real people who might be the, their friends, tag them in the local buying and selling in Blackburn Facebook groups, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> one of the Rochdale groups is where we got uh, Jess, one of our contributors, from. So these, these kind of things are quite labour-intensive, but they do they do work. So before we move on to the, the, the third example, I just think it's interesting listening to you that you speak about the contestants as people you know very well. Um, I mean, as a producer, there are, there are certain contestants I remember very well from years and years and years ago but i i just find it fascinating listening to your the way you described them that this is three years ago you went through thousands of application forms whatever and these are people that you speak of like like friends house share was quite an interesting one because i had a little bit of help for a couple of weeks with with targeting from a researcher but apart from that i cast the whole show independently on on my own I did speak to all of them. Um, I did do all the phone chats. I did do all the kind of Skype, it was then, but it's now Zoom interviews and kind of was kind of liaising back and forwards with them. But I think one thing in casting that I found useful is having a good memory. That person who applied for that quiz, they rang a bell because I had them shortlisted for another quiz, but they we didn't put them on because of this, because uh, they were going to be on TV uh, oh, they've not told us about that TV appearance that they were supposed to have, etc. 
and presumably there are people that you remember who weren't suitable for one particular show who you think actually they'd be brilliant for another show definitely Uh, i can remember a specific example i worked on a show called hardball i auditioned this contestant and she didn't she didn't go through um, and then I was casting the pilot for Small Fortune and I thought she seemed really kind of competitive, contacted her. She applied with two of her friend and sister. They got on the pilot and then they got on the series as well. Oh, excellent. Now, there's been a recent sea change in the fortunes of the streamers and Justin's been looking into this. So what have you got for us? So one thing that you're probably aware of is this <laughs> extraordinary slashing of jobs right across that sector. Uh, so Amazon are laying off about 3% of their employees. Twitter, about 50%, 13% at Meta. And even Disney are now indicating a hiring freeze and, and possibly loss of jobs as well. And so again, it's worth mentioning because that is going to have an impact on our industry. You know, we've assumed for several uh, years, certainly months, that there was the magic money tree at the streamers if we if we had an issue with broadcasters cutting their budgets. But clearly the economic slowdown is, is hitting them as well. I don't know what your take on that is, David. Well, I'm just trying to think of what is the, going to be the actual effect of that on viewers. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly what that will be because like all of the stuff is still in the cloud the thing that will hit people perhaps might be a slowdown in in newer content Mm. but will that be enough to make people unsubscribe i wouldn't have thought so i think certainly one of the major impacts is going to be the arrival of advertising i mean we we now know that obviously we know that ad tiers are going to arrive at netflix but they're also arriving at Disney Plus and HBO Max and Discovery. So it's an extraordinary rollback, really, from a time where we were told that advertising was dead and nobody was prepared to watch them, that they are all reaching out for the most obvious revenue stream, which is which is to carry ads. What we don't know yet is quite what that ad what those ads are going to look like. And at the moment, from what I gather, because they're being um, algorithm driven. <laughs> They are quite random um, because the ad AIs have got to catch up with, you know, what you watch and who you are and all the rest of it that AI stuff does. Well, yeah, it's called the mid-roll to use the YouTube term. So there's various ways this can be done. Sometimes the algorithm either looks for like a blank period in your program where let's say uh, this, it knows that the screen goes black briefly or that somebody stops talking. Mm. So it sort of goes, well, that might be an appropriate point to put an ad break in there. Sometimes it could be that it knows that uh, there is a very key moment in the show because it knows of the graph of when people have been watching the show. So if it knows that like this is a, a really good cliffhanger moment, it can sort of go, aha, that's a good point to keep people watching by putting an ad break in there. Or if you find all of that a little bit clunky, then you can... For example, on YouTube, you can specify um, particular points in the show where you manually want to insert ad breaks. But of course, right. a lot of their content was originally made without ad breaks in mind. So Absolutely, it's still going to yeah. come across as a bit clunky, isn't it? Yeah, it's still going to crash in. I think what we see with Netflix is, a, is another couple of ways in which they're looking to uh, reposition themselves. 
So one of which is about live. So we never haven't really expected Netflix to be live to date. But I gather that Chris Rock is going to be the very first artist to perform live on Netflix, the American comedian, um, which will be their very first ever live global streaming event, which mm. is uh, set to happen in 2023. So is that going to work a bit like a YouTube premiere in that you can watch the first sort of live performance, but then the actual show will just then still stay on the platform so you can catch up with it later. I, I would assume so, yes, but they'll build all the buzz around, you know, co-viewing. I mean, hey, <laughs> who imagined that hmm. Netflix would be pursuing co-viewing? Um, hmm. And secondly, they're very quietly moving into sport, into live sport as well. I think they're eyeing the success that Amazon have had bidding for rights. And so Netflix have rather, you know, quietly joined the bidding wars as well and started bidding for live sports on Netflix. So well, hopefully they'll have a, an easier time of things than Amazon had when they started because they, their, their first year or two that they had with them, um, tennis, for example, was a bit rough, was let's it? say. Oh, right. Tell it, me. Well, well, in terms of like they, they, they live streaming is is the worst possible nightmare scenario for the internet structure because you're you're having to have effectively one-on-one connections with every individual single customer with a large amount of data that needs to be delivered in a timely fashion and can't have any breaks in it and so it's like there's a lot of things going against you uh, in order to get the, the signal to these people in a, in a good way so um, i think amazon's infrastructure didn't really deliver and uh, there was a lot of complaints about either choppy picture or um frankly just being able to connect and mm. they've they managed to sort of solve it whatever it was um mm. <laughs> compared to the old days of uh, just flinging out one signal on an analog uh, antenna and just everybody else just <laughs> listening into it it's a, it's it's a very much a different prospect yeah, and of course, you know, sports broadcasting, which, you know, I don't particularly follow, but I ought to follow from a distance, you know, has, has evolved where the actual match or game or whatever is only one small part of the experience. You know, you have a, you have a cup final that's scheduled for two o'clock and the, the program starts eight hours beforehand. So it's not just a question of bidding for the sport, but they've also got to pull across, you know, they've got, they've got to find their commentators, their pundits and everybody else. And presumably they'll try to buy them from, from other places. But, <clears throat> you know, that's something that takes time to build. So in the ongoing story, as we're describing, of, of streamers becoming broadcasters, um, the other interesting thing that's happened in the last couple of weeks is Barb. Uh, so Bob is not just an American guy called Bob. Bob is the rating system used by the UK. And for the very first time, Netflix has now joined Bob, which means that we are now able to see what their ratings actually are. And honestly, the results have been very, very surprising. So first of all, uh, looking at 2022 to, to date, Linear and on-demand channels from broadcasters accounted for about two-thirds of all viewing. So they're still very much in there compared to about a sixth for advertising or subscription video on-demand services. So this idea that everyone has just stopped watching terrestrial TV and is now watching the streamers, not so true. Mm. So that was one statistic that I pulled up. In another interesting statistic was about the average daily viewing time. So this is from September 2022. So for broadcaster services, that was 159 minutes. Okay, that's the average daily viewing time. 
Mm. So what do you think it was for the SVOD and AVOD services in comparison? I'm going to sort of guess around a quarter of that, so maybe like 30 minutes. Pretty good, 36. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> uh, which again, you know, 159 minutes to 36 is is quite a difference. And the last statistics out of that that I pulled out was about the crown. So we know the crown is the, the jewel in the crown of, of Netflix drama. We know that episodes, certainly in the past, have cost $10 million an episode. So, you know, running up to $100 million for a series. So the number of people who saw at least one episode of season five uh, on a Wednesday last week was 1.1 million. Mm-hmm. That's all. And that's in the UK, is it? This is this is all UK ratings. Right. By comparison, the number of people who watched I'm a Celebrity on ITV was 7.9 million. So that was surprising. The number of people who kept watching for episode two was 666,000. And for episode three was just short of 300,000. Mm-hmm. And the ratings declined. Now, this is all... They, you know, obviously, they dumped the whole series in one go. So this is the kind of retention of people, you know, moving from the first episode to the last episode, binge watching the whole thing. But again, we're told that binge watching is this huge, huge thing. So basically, the ratings declined for every episode. So for the 10th and final episode, the audience was about 100 people. <laughs> 100 people watched the whole series when it when it landed. In the UK, and how long has it, how long has this been out? How long have I had to watch it? Oh well, this is this is when it was coming out to begin with, so when it was first right. dumped. So obviously, those those numbers are going to change hugely, and people are going to watch it over time, and they might be watching it, you know, in, in a month or a year or or whatever. So of course, those numbers are going to change, but that's not the ground on which they're competing. You know, they're competing on who's watching what now. And I think we've got to remember that. So this kind of myth of the streamer blockbuster that just completely swamps terrestrial broadcasting, I think has been blown. I think it's really, really fascinating. You know, I'm not in any way saying that Netflix isn't tremendously successful and it doesn't and that it doesn't produce some terrific content, which it does. I think it's just about having a necessary corrective in your brain that says, you know, broadcasters failing, declining, streamers, success, making huge amounts of money. That's where where all the audience is. And I think now that we have the ratings, you know, we can begin to say, well, you know, maybe that's not as true as we thought. We had this issue of viewer drop-off on YouTube when I tried to do a a sort of mini six-part series of a format with my my good friend Tom Scott. Mm. And we had... Maybe about a million people watch the first episode, but only maybe 220,000 watch episode six. And this is the reason why you don't really get series of things on YouTube. Why, why is everything kind of like a one-off? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a sort of, here's something amazing, but now next week I'm going to just do something that, something different. And then the next week I'm going to do something completely different again. It's sort of like the, the novelty factor was wears off very quickly with the YouTube Gen yeah. Z type crowd yeah. and and 
several people have tried to do a kind of returning format of, of things, but it, for some, whatever reason, it doesn't work with that kind of audience. They, 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 uh, they much prefer short clips that are completely novel. Yeah. That said, there are places where it can work. I mean, obviously podcasts are more regular and there are th- more like walled garden services like Nebula, for instance, where they, people have got away with more formatted, structured s- solution to these things. Mm. But I think you see you see the same thing in the streamers as well. So, you know, when we were first pitching shows to to Netflix as an example and Amazon, you know, they were looking for a 10-part series, 13-part series, things like that. Now, most they're interested in is eight um, mm. and preferably six. And then you have to demonstrate, certainly in the unscripted space, you have to demonstrate enormous hooks to get people to watch. Because what people tend to do with unscripted series, even if they're arced series, like a talent show where, you know, people are eliminated as you go, so it's all one story that's spread out across a number of episodes, is that people tend to watch the first one and a couple of ones in the middle and then the final. And they don't, they just don't watch the whole series. So you really have to work hard with the story to find reasons why people would watch each episode. Now, that's actually always been true, certainly with game shows and things like that on on TV, on regular TV. What the ratings never really revealed, but detailed ratings revealed, was that people tended not to watch all the episodes. So you might have a regular audience across a series, but it wasn't the same people watching from episode to episode. But as long as the numbers were good, that was fine. But I think what the streamers are finding, even when they put stuff out weekly, is that they can't hold people across a series, an unscripted series, beyond six episodes. And that's even beginning to feed into drama now. Drama runs are getting shorter too. And it's not just about the budget. It's just about that, trying to hold on to people. And now it's time to go back to our interview with casting executive Andy Mallon. And we pick up the conversation on the topic of how contestants might try to beat the system. So that's obviously one of these sort of dark arts, isn't it, about being a contestant? Because there are these sort of people who... I don't think there's quite as many these days, perhaps, but there, there were people at Daphne Fowler who were like, we used to go on 10, 15, 20 different shows yeah. and kind of almost make a bit of a career of it. Obviously, you've now got that, a memory to sort of spot these sorts of people, but like, if, if you don't spot these people just from the names and things, like, how, how can you tell whether somebody's actually secretly a really good quiz whiz and they're perhaps pretending to be a little bit less of a quiz pro than they really are to try and sort of like improve their chances mm. of getting on the show? I've actually never had anyone who has tried to downplay, or I've not caught anyone anyway, um, who's (laughs) tried to downplay. Uh, I have had the opposite, though, on Hit List, where I was auditioning this girl, and she definitely was using Shazam, and Hmm. and I didn't cast her because I could tell by her pronunciations (laughs) of some of the artists. That she didn't know who they were. I can't remember the specifics, but I can just remember sending this clip to my series producer saying, Have a watch of this. They've got 14 out of 15, but I genuinely think she has got her phone beside her and didn't have a clue. Is that one Shakira? (laughs) It was honestly kind of like that, yeah. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah. Very funny. So do you have a blacklist? Um, I mean, obviously, as David says, there are some people who, who go on lots of things. And that used to be fine, I think. I remember there was a vicar at Heathrow um, who was... David Smith, his name was. Was that who he was? Yeah, who was... Mm always available <laughs> for any afternoon quiz but he did put the money back to to his parish so it was a very deliberate thing but um i guess nowadays you have to be more careful so are the amongst contestant uh producers do you have a hit list or a, a, a blacklist no there's nothing like that and i don't think in the current climate that kind of thing would be legal <laughs> or ethical uh, to have like something formal if I've remembered someone from an audition, for example, who might not have been the nicest of characters or something, then, you know, I'll remember that um, when looking to cast that person in future. Uh, in terms of stuff like high quizzers who've been on a lot of shows, there's not a clear written rule that contestants across all channels need to be, you know, have this amount of time between uh, TV appearances, but quite often in uh, the kind of contributor agreements for show X, it will probably say you cannot be on show Y until six months after the transmission. Okay. Mm. And I have had people who, you know, I've had them on show X and I've been working on show Y and it's not been six months. Or a friend might be working on someone and said, oh, I, I remember you mentioning this this name to me of this person who, who was on this. Has that gone out yet? So you do kind of talk to people within tv because you don't want you know casting producers don't want to have a reputation of being lazy as casting the same people who have been on multiple shows i remember i think a a few years back there was a daily mail article about the same person was on like tipping point and the chase back to back because of like repeats or something like that Mm, and mm. that kind of thing might happen from time to time but you kind of don't want to be to be that person so speaking of tipping point there's one lady that i know who applied a I think over 10 times she's auditioned four times and she's never got on the show. So what is it that she can do to sort of stand out from the crowd and rather than become like, uh, yeah, she's fine, but there are other people who are better. How can she actually get chosen to be the one? It's a bit of a peculiar one that I'd say, uh, because if I had auditioned someone and I knew that I didn't want them on the show for whatever reason, certain people might just not be suitable for a certain show then I wouldn't put them through the same process again to then say no to them again. There are some people that I've said no to for series one of Money Bags and then cast on series two. Uh, quite often, the reasons behind that could be literally something as stupid as I've got too many Davids and they're also called <laughs> Davids. Look, my, my dad and my granddad were both called David. Yeah. That's a situation I'm very familiar yeah. with. Yeah. <laughs> So way back when we were talking about three examples, yeah. um, and I think the uh, the third one was money bags. Yeah, so money bags casting process. Uh, obviously, we were looking for contestants who would be on five consecutive shows. You kind of want ten contestants across the week who are all kind of distinct and different. It's a little bit like impossible in that side of things, but I kind of view it as a bit of like a guess who the board game (laughs) that everyone should kind of be distinct in that mix where you can't have you can't think oh is that person that person they all need to kind of be distinct both in terms of their personality and how they look obviously the good thing about money bags you do not need to be a high level quizzer because you're deciding whether to pick up a bag or 
to let a bag go by you. So that is is one thing. Uh, high level. We have had a few high level quizzers on who've actually not won, which is quite interesting because obviously the question type can be anything from you know your standard quiz stuff about colours of flags to things taller than a Shetland pony, uh, which isn't in those quiz books that those guys will be looking at. On a lot of these flies for contestant calls, you say you have these keywords like, are you outgoing, knowledgeable and fun and friendly? Why don't you come onto this quiz? I mean, some people might say, is there no room for grumpy introverts on these shows? Is it just like an absolute no-no? Or would you actually sometimes let somebody who's a bit different on? I think someone who's a bit different on within the mix would be absolutely fine. And not all shows you need to be you know, outgoing. For example, I worked on Eggheads at the start of the year and you don't need to be outgoing kind of personality as long as you can get a talk through your reasoning and you're not going to freeze in front of the camera. That's quite a good one to go on because you're kind of there with your team and there's, it's not just all about you as well. Sure. How do you cope when the, the numbers get vast? I mean, I talked once to an exec who used to work on uh, first dates and he said and this was some years ago that they had something like 300,000 people on their system and it's probably more by now uh, I, I just can't even comprehend how you can cope with hundreds of thousands of people applying for your show I've not had to cope with that yet um, but it's a nice I, I'd say that that's a nice problem to have it's far harder to work on first series where you're not able to even say who the channel is, say the name of the presenter, and you're trying to put out a generic flyer that doesn't say anything about why the show is so great. Um, and trying to attract people mm. to apply for a show like that is quite a challenge because you're essentially just saying apply for this thing that you don't even know what it is. And even titles people are pretty secretive of these days as well. When I did the uh, Small Fortune pilot, I remember that I had to put a dummy title on the flyer just while the legal stuff was going through or whatever a lot about the about the name of the show that they wanted to call it but something like first dates obviously it does help them because they've got to do the kind of matching process whereas something like the chase uh, you've got that amount of contestants essentially you can just pick the best ones which is and how do you sort of break up the monotony of having to sort of ring up hundreds of people? I once sat across somebody doing casting for one of the shows I was on, and I think after a few days, I knew the script better yeah. than they did. You will have mornings like that where you will get 10 voicemails in a row, no one will speak to you. The next two people that will speak to you think you're double glazing or PPI. The next person <laughs> doesn't care, they slam the phone down on you. But it's when you get those great contributors uh, and often the ones that surprise you that you think, mm, I'm not sure about this application, but I'm just going to give them a try. And then they're actually brilliant that you're like, OK, this this is kind of what makes the job worthwhile and this is why you do it. Potentially, you are somewhat responsible for maybe giving people the chance to win hundreds of thousands of pounds. So if you let people know actually sorry you, you know application is not going to go through do you get some quite strange reactions sometimes from people are sort of a bit angry or a bit sort of generally with casting the line is if you don't hear within the next two to three weeks unfortunately you've been unsuccessful for this series um however 
if someone makes it to a shortlisting, they know that they have obviously been deemed to have had a strong enough application um, to kind of make it that far. And that's someone that we would be happy about putting on the show. But for whatever reason, they haven't got on the show. Um, So those people, in my experience, we generally would say. uh, And kind of at the moment as well, in the past two years, we've really heavily caveated that with, as it stands, you're not on the show. (laughs) But (laughs) uh, that could change and we would be happy to have you on the show. And it's about doing that. I think especially for those people on the shortlist in a kind of professional and kind of dignified manner because it's my job to keep the people coming. I can't just go to my exec and say, we need to pause filming for today uh, because, you know, Jim's train's broken down. I need to have a plan B, plan C, plan D about how I'm going to get someone on the show and those people need to have kind of been through the exact same process as the first choice uh, contestants that we had. Obviously, as we've established, the thousands of people have passed before your eyes. Who was your favourite contestant over the last seven years? I know it's a oh it's a big ask, but favourite because of their personality, because of their performance, because of their background. You know, if you if you had to pick one or or, or even a couple, if that's easier, who would you say was your favourite? The first person that sprung to mind was on. Series four of Hit List, we had a father and son called Peter and Peter, and the son and his dad had an incredible bond. The son was in his early 20s, and the dad was in his early 50s. The son was absolutely mad about music, and he absolutely smashed it, did incredibly well, um, and was pipped at the post by one or two seconds in the kind of semi final on the show by uh, a pair of twins who were also absolutely brilliant. So they're they're very, very memorable because it's a particularly kind of memorable episode where it's kind of gone down to the wire and the kind of quality of their quizzing and also a kind of endearing story, a really nice bond as well. So they're kind of two that, that stand out to me. I think you always find that people who are named after their father are exceptionally <laughs> high-quality people. Um, anyway, well, that's been a brilliant insight, Andy, into the world of contestant research. Is this something that you, you're going to go on and doing, or are, are you going to eye up sort of more overall production roles in the future? Yeah, so I've done a bit of kind of edit producing as well. So kind of going forward, I'd like to kind of continue casting and also kind of do a bit of that as well to kind of see the production, you know, from, from all sides. Well, we wish you the very best of luck with that but in the meantime thanks so much indeed for your time to come on tv show and tell no problem it's been fun so justin i want to tell you about my trip to manchester the other day mm-hmm. and it was eye-opening i have to say so what this is is uh they have well there's two things that i went to do one was the crystal maze experience uh, so this was a interactive version where groups of i think it's eight people go around a smaller version of crystal maze show that you and i both know very well and they play games from the show and also wanted a few new new games as well it's not as expensively done as the tv set but certainly it was a very enjoyable experience we're led by a very funny guy as our maze master who's called Anytime Thursday, <laughs> who's a sort of camp uh, older gentleman. 
who was, I have to say, absolutely excellent in just gently getting us out of our shells and, and making sure we had a great time. But the, the main thing I want to talk about was the other thing that we did straight afterwards, while, while our adrenaline was still really hyper. We went to the Arndale Centre, this sort of a shopping centre mm-hmm. right. in the centre of Manchester. And there is a place there where they've taken the ITV format, The Cube, Oh, right. And they've they've implemented it in effectively a bar. Wow. You would not believe how well they've done it. I have to say, enormously impressed. So, first of all, how many cubes do you think you can fit in a bar? There's a riddle for you. you know, cubes <laughs> from the show that you can get inside and play yeah. a game. Yeah, so imagine Wonderland. like you take take genuinely the cube mm-hmm. from the TV show, how many of those can you fit in a bar? Four? They've fitted 12. Wow. <laughs> now, it's a big bar, mm. but like you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe that you could fit 12. Now, that's partly because the thing on the TV show is not as big as you, you think. Actually, three metres by three metres by mm. three metres. So it just about fits in, in a sort of bar height. And three meters across is not actually that huge. And it's like, you know, it's a couple of restaurant tables across, isn't it? Yeah. So, so they have 12 different games, 12 different cubes. They're all built exactly like the television show. So they've got the proper LED floor. They're made with you know, proper bits of steel. Yeah. When you go in, the door goes, bzz, you go in and bzz, shuts behind you. And you genuinely are inside there on your own. There was quite a lot of two player games as well. So what happens is, because you're not sort of winning money, the, the way they've implemented it is that you play for points versus another pair of people. And some of the time you have to sort of say which of the two of you plays the game. And sometimes you go in as a pair and play, play right. the game. And all the equipment is very much like this, the equipment that they have on the show. Mm. And they have a lot of the favorite games from the show. And, and some I don't quite remember, but they're all official games effectively. And it's really cleverly done. And also what's nice about it is that the scheduling of it, it's all managed by computer. So if you want to wander off and see what your friends are doing, if they're, if they're playing against a different couple or you're in a big group and everybody's slightly gone to different places, or if you want to go to the toilet, you want to get a drink, whatever, the computer will cope and it'll, it'll just sort of leapfrog other people in front of you. So it'll say, you know, your next game is Pathfinder. Go to the Pathfinder cube. And then when you're ready, you, you just rock up, you sort of scan your phone in to say we're here and we're ready to play. And then it will cue you to play the, the next game. I mean, apart from the fact you can't win any money, mm. it genuinely felt like you were on the show. The sound effects and the lighting, they got all of that spot on. And they even had on one of them, on the barrier game, the set of cameras around the the outside. Mm-hmm. So that if they wanted to do the sort of like bullet time shot when you sort of like putting your leg over the the bar, they can they can show you what that would look like as well. It was it was um really great. I have to say I would, I would give it like nine out of ten. The only thing that slightly bothered me was that the scoring system was nonsense because like game seven was worth about ten times what game one was worth. <laughs> but but yeah. in terms of like difficulty, it was pretty tricky. I think we only got two or three out of the seven games and and some of those were after you get three tries at every game and if you get if you do the first first time you get lots of points and if you do it the second time you get slightly less points if the third time you get slightly less points but the main thing is you get 
whether you do it or you don't do it. That's the big points difference. Well, I guess the word that links all of this is experience, isn't it? Because, you know, we're being told with shopping and and all the crisis that happened with shopping as a result of the pandemic is that what people are trying to do to bring people back to shopping is to enhance the shopping experience. Um, So by bringing these shows into the Armdale Centre and other kind of places, you enhance the shopping experience, you stay for longer, you know, you do your shopping, you go there, then you go and have a drink, or you have a drink in the bar, <laughs> the cube bar, uh, or whatever. And at the same time, you are extending the experience of the show as well. So you're taking the show and you're, you're building it out into a user experience that lives outside of just a television show. And also, we were the oldest people. <laughs> I was probably the oldest person in the entire place because everybody who was playing this were, I mean, Manchester's got a younger population than London, I, I think, anyway. But like, these were all 20-somethings mm. playing this. Mm. And, like, uh, they, they were actually lapping it up. And they, they were much younger than the average television audience. They really, I mean, it was cool without it being it sort of oppressively cool and trendy they, yeah. they pitched it pretty well i mean i mean it was it was still 10 pounds for a cocktail which like someone in my age will never <laughs> ever pay but but <laughs> but nevertheless everybody, uh, everybody gets a sit <laughs> yeah As you say with experiences now there are a range of these things mm. that people can do so although it's just shut there was an i'm a celebrity experience i think in salford in the media city there, which I think largely was sort of a ropes course, um, sort of dressed up. Then uh, there's a sort of like a Bear Grylls attraction in Chessington uh, theme park near me. There is, uh, then, which, which just seems to involve a lot of tyres. <laughs> well, well, maybe they're maybe they're mixed cross ply and radial maybe that's the big danger i looked that up a while ago for another for another show and i was slightly disappointed by that but uh, yeah i mean it's, i mean these things have been around a long time i remember again i mean the crystal maze you've just been on that experience now but i remember back in the day you know we had six crystal maze experiences around the world i think four of them were in the uk two of them were abroad one of them was in a shopping center in, in abu dhabi I remember going to the opening of one in the UK, which I think was in Maidstone, but I might be wrong, um, with the, with the host who at that point said she'd poll. So it was, yeah, I mean, it's, if you can do it and if you can sustain it and you can make them financially work, then I think it's a terrific way of, a, of, as I said, of extending the, the viewer experience. Yeah. I was going to actually say, my final question was, is this now the whole thing about experiences? Is this something now we're going to have to build into formats? Is, still, is the, the idea of watching a show and sitting back now slightly passe? Do we have to sort of feel like, whether it's in the metaverse or turning up to the Arndea Center, mm. or just even if it's still shouting at the screen what the answers are, like it's, it's taking part now a really important part of stopping people from using the scrubber bar and going, this bit's boring and yeah, I'll just yeah. scroll to the end. I suspect, I suspect it is still the case that the commissioning department and the commercial department are different floors, different buildings, possibly even different countries. And so, you know, you don't necessarily have that conversation 
you know, you, you had, when you pitch the show, you had the conversation with the creative commissioning person that you're pitching to and the commercial person is, isn't in the room. But if, you know, again, I might be wrong. And certainly I think it's something that needs change because it isn't a dirty word. I mean, none of the experiences that you're describing, um, denigrate the show. I think they, no. they enhance the show. They enhance the creativity of the show. They, they show how strong it is and how people want to engage it. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. So, you know, I, I think I would still say that, um, at least alluding to the fact that the show has potential beyond its boundaries is important. And perhaps, as you say, now it's more important than, than it ever has been. And we're back with casting producer Andy Mallon. So, Andy, what weird and wonderful object have you brought to show and tell us? Well, I was having a good think about this, about what I'd actually had. Unfortunately, I've not got a money bag under my desk or anything interesting of that. <laughs> um, but what I do have is this is a suit that I wore to my first ever TV job interview. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and that kind of was memorable because it's the only time I've ever worn a suit in my whole kind of TV career for Remedy Productions back in 2011. I remember the day because it was one of those London September Sundays, 25 degrees. I walk into an office, everyone is in their shorts. Uh, the exec that interviewed me was wearing flip flops. And I turn up in a suit, um, but I do remember that one of the people that interviewed me did say, we knew you were serious when you turned up in a suit. I knew a little bit about Remedy. I, I, I had a, a few interactions with them. They were quite a cool company, weren't they? Because they did a lot of work for MTV yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and a lot of youth shows and stuff like that. So, Yeah, not, not the kind of place where anyone wore a suit, uh, no matter what kind of rank you were. So that was kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, it served the purpose. It meant that was memorable and I you know, ended up working there for three years, so. Well, I did too, too. <laughs> well, obviously the suit uh, did its work and it's it's proved to uh, spark a, a long and successful career in television, which we hope will continue for many years. So, Annie Mellon, again, thanks at Need for showing us your business suit. And finally, we've just got time to fit in a fake or format. Justin's got two shows to tell me about, but one of them is not real, and one of them is, and I've got to find which one's which. Over to you, sir. This week, our two formats are both about facial hair. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here's the first one. The first one is called Tashmaster, <laughs> and it's a Movember special competition on Comedy Central in which celebrities are challenged to grow and groom a famous moustache. So categories have included Freddie Mercury, Salvador Dali, Emiliano Zapata, Burt Reynolds and General Burnside. But hopefully not Adolf Hitler. No, that yes. has not come up. Right, but okay. So people are given, they, they choose one of the categories and then they've got all year to several months to grow their moustache and groom it, prepare it, and, and offer it for the competition. Right. Okay. So that's Tashmaster. The second one is called Whisker Wars. <laughs> this is a docu-reality series on, on cable TV. It's set in the world of competitive facial hair growing, and it follows a group of 
in this case American hopefuls, as they enter bidding contests around the country. Um, and what they're doing is they're preparing for the World Championships of competitive facial hair growing in Trondheim in Norway. So those are the two. So there's Tashmaster and Whisker Wars. Which is the fake and which is the format? Hmm. Well, anything I can go on is that I can see how the second one might work better in terms of just the time lapse. Like the first one is kind of just like just it's just, it's just sort of like you don't have a tash and suddenly you come on and you do. Um, whereas I think the second one, because it's documentary pace, how long does it take better. you to grow a mustache? Um, I don't know. Probably uh, sort of. It depends on like whether when I can find my sharp razor or whether my wife's pinched it, and oh, right. that, that, that largely depends on how how long my beard lasts. Like when yeah. I finally finally get my my Gillette back, I can I can shave again. I would say a couple of months. So a month is quite short, really. But I mean, yeah, obviously November is 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 a thing. November, so. yeah, but I mean, you can lead up to it. Anyway, it's up to you, Tashmaster or Whisker Wars. I think there's a lot more culture around beards. I remember seeing some like really wacky photos of people like f- weaving their beard and, and sticking flowers in their beard and, and doing quite insane stuff with beards. So I I would say probably there's more material to be had in Whisker Wars. So I'm going to say that one's the real one. And you are correct. So well done. Oh, <laughs> finally. <laughs> yeah, Whisker Wars is a docu-reality series on the channel called IFC, which is an American cable channel, and pretty much as as I described. Though I must say that I think, uh, as with as with the number of our fakes, I think I'm going to pitch Tashmaster around about now so that it can get commissioned in time for people to start growing their moustaches in August, let's say, August or September, to take part in a, a special for November. Yeah. Anyway, watch this face. <laughs> Very good. And that's your lot for this episode. If you want to contact the show, please email us via contact at tvshowandtell.com. Or if it still exists by the time you hear this, we're also on Twitter at TV Show Podcast. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>